Okay, so we are uh, back into the book of James. Back in our courageously Christ-like series. If we could bring up the PowerPoint, please, that would be marvellous. Let's get my uh, water up here. Perfect. All right, marvellous. Daring to be like Jesus. Our journey through this book of James, an amazing book. And I just want to say to you this morning, I believe God wants to say some stuff to us, significant things. Um, Sometimes you can just tell when things are a little bit niggly, it's like God wants to do something and someone doesn't want him to. So just press in with me if you don't mind. Let's lean into scripture. Let's just listen to what the Lord's wanting to say. Let's be open to him speaking to us this morning. So let's just pray in that regard. Lord, we just humble ourselves now as we sit under your word. I'm just so aware I've got lots of words to say, but my words change nothing, Lord. Would you speak to each one of us this morning through your Holy Spirit? As we look at your written word, may it become the living word to us today. Make us more like Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, so I've got a question for you. Um, Do you trust your own judgment? (laughs) Who here trusts their own judgment? I'm going to talk to you this morning about this passage, about favouritism and judgment. Do you trust your own judgment? Anyone? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the response I'm expecting. Um, There are some things I could show you now, and one thing I'm going to show you now, which really might make you doubt your own judgment. Check out this. This is called the shepherd's table. It's an illusion. I've given away. You know already, I, I, I can't trick you on it. But you still won't trust your judgment when I tell you both of those tabletops are exactly the same shape and size. Exactly. I cannot get my head around this one. I've spent most of a week and I still, I put a piece of paper up on the computer screen and drew round and measured and tried to, they are exactly the same size. One looks thin and long, one clearly is short and fat. But no, when you turn them around, those two tabletops are exactly the same size. Even now you've seen it, do you believe it? I'm still not sure I do. I think I do it and then I go, yeah, that's still not right. That's still not right. I cannot trust my judgment on that one. If you want to see it, it's called the shepherd's table. You can look it up on Google and you can measure those two tabletops when you get home and go, he was right. They are the same size. You see, on a serious note, I want to ask you, when was the last time you judged someone or something? Me? Judge? Matt? Never. Actually, I want to suggest we judge all the time, don't we? Actually, so much of it is good and right. We make judgment calls all the time. Does that look cooked to you? It's quite an important judgment call. What outfit do you think is appropriate for tonight? What's this car in front up to? What's the easiest way this time of day, do you think? Does this look straight to you? Does my bum look big in this? Careful, (laughs) careful. That's not a judgment call. There's only one answer. Um, do you think, mm, reasonable? No, no. Um, do you think we'll make it across? Where's most likely to stock that at this time of night? Do you think it's probably best if we just leave? Yes, yes, I think it is. 
all day, every day. We use this God-given gift to be reasonable, to take things into account, to make calculated decisions, to weigh things up, to make judgment calls. It's part of wisdom, it's part of living rightly. And we can get really good at judging things. Some of you trust your judgment. Builders can judge the height of something just by looking at it. Chefs can judge how cooked a steak is just by poking at it. When I was in print, oh, what a glorious industry, I could tell you the exact weight of a paper in grams per square meter just by wiggling it in my fingers, and I got really good at it. And we begin to trust our judgment. Yet the problem comes when we begin to apply our ability to judge the people. In fact, I think one of the greatest harms we can ever do to someone, actually, is to incorrectly judge them before we really know them or understand their situation. The truth is, there are times when you're going to need to make judgment calls about people. Whether you feel someone's posing imminent harm to you or someone else, you're going to have to make immediate judgment calls. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the fact that more often than not, whether we realise it or not, whether we admit it or not, in our everyday lives, we judge people nearly all the time. Nearly all the time, based on what they look like, what they're wearing, how they speak, how they smell, what they drive, what they drink, what music they listen to, what their hobbies are, how their kids behave, where they live, what school they went to, what paper they read, what party they vote for, what people they hang out with, how tidy their house is, how clean their hair is, what colour their skin is, what gender or sexuality they are, what makeup they're wearing, how attractive we think they are, what predicament they've currently got themselves into. And here's the issue. We then change our actions towards that person based on our immediate judgment or pre-judgment. We either show them favour or we hold back favour. We're either interested or disinterested. I wonder, have you ever been on the receiving end of someone's unfair judgment? It's horrendous, actually. It's horrible. Because where right and fair judgment actually leads to freedom and wisdom and flourishing and safety, unfair and wrong judgment, without understanding, without compassion, from the world's point of view, is actually a cause of immense damage to another person. We crush and destroy rather than release them into flourishing. So I want to say to you again, I believe one of the greatest harms we can do to someone, to anyone, is to unfairly prejudge them according to these worldly standards that I was just going through. In fact, it's so harmful, this behaviour, that James, in this passage, you'll have heard it read by Rona, basically says that if we as Christians are going around judging people, dishing out levels of favour in this way, it's as if we're breaking the entire law of God. You see, there clearly was a real problem with judgment and favouritism going on in the early church. And James pulls absolutely no punches as he parallels it with adultery and murder. Wow. Don't think this is some small minor topic, James is saying. To judge others in this way, he says, is not simply an inconvenience or a disappointment. It's quite simply an evil, he says. In fact, he says, when you're doing this, you're acting like judges with evil thoughts. He says in verse 4, that is not a title any of us should covet. So what was going on? Well, James spells it out really clearly in the church. He says, well, suppose a man comes in wearing a gold ring, fine clothes, and then a poor, filthy man comes in as well. And you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and you say, look, here's a seat for you. Here's a, a beautiful cushion that we've got just here. It would be perfect for you. Come and sit. It's so wonderful that you're here. 
And to the other one, we just say, there's probably space over there, just sit on the floor. Yeah, almost like they're an inconvenience. When you do that, James says, have you not discriminated among yourselves? Have you not become judges with evil thoughts? Clearly, and possibly without even realising, James is saying that God's people in the early church had been showing great favour to people with money and power and influence when they came into the church gathering. And they'd been barely noticing or not treating in the same way at all those with humble backgrounds. And in doing this, rather than bringing unity and family and the kingdom of God, they were discriminating or rather causing division in God's family among themselves. Proof that this behaviour doesn't come from the Holy Spirit that brings unity. This comes from the enemy who loves to kill and steal and destroy. He loves to divide the people of God. God's people were judging others by the world standard. And in so doing, they were harming themselves. And they were harming the people coming into their gatherings. You see, being on the receiving end of feeling judged really is a powerfully negative emotion. I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to be honest now. Uh, I will if you promise you're not going to judge me. Promise? Ish? (laughs) Okay, some judging. That's fine, as long as it's not all judging. On Thursday night, <clears throat> may I begin, driving back from seeing a friend. I was coming down the A38 in my Volvo, cruising along, as you do, um, going down the hill, and suddenly I thought, well, the engine's sounding smooth, or rather quiet. Um, ah, the steering's got quite heavy all of a sudden, hasn't it? And in that moment, my heart sunk, because I knew exactly what had happened. I'd run out of fuel. <laughs> Thank you. The judging begins. I know. I know. And I managed to just about squeeze it into a lay-by off the dual carriageway. I had judged that I had enough fuel to go and see my friend and to come back to a garage. I knew it was running low, but no, I didn't have enough fuel. And instantly, I felt so stupid, so foolish, so embarrassed and frustrated with myself. And so I had to pick up the courage uh, for the phone call of shame. You know that phone call. And I rang my wife, highly embarrassed, Becky, <laughs> yeah, I've run out of fuel. I've massively run out of fuel. So Team Bradley, the kids, all in the SPAS, come and rescue Dad, who's sat there in shame, uh, and uh, get the fuel out. And it's a lovely black can of diesel, and we pop it in, and we turn the engine, and absolutely nothing happens. Because if you know a little bit about mechanics, you'll know that a diesel engine needs bleeding. The air needs bleeding out of the engine. You can't, with a petrol, you chuck it in and off it goes. But I was stuck. The engine would not start. So I sent my family home and I made the call of shame number two. This time to the AA. Oh! Now I'd heard about this before. That the biggest reason the AA gets called out is for people running out of fuel. And I've always thought, who would do that? That is so embarrassing. Who would do that? I would rather march 10 miles, get my own fuel can and come back in my stubborn pride and fill it up rather than ringing the AA. But I had no choice. It would not start. So I rang and on the phone, you just hear me, what's the problem? So I said, uh, fuel. <clears throat> Pardon, what was that? Yeah, run out of fuel. <laughs> and you could... I see, thank you, tappy, tappy, tappy as he puts it in, oh man, the shame, so then I sit and I wait and I wait on my own in the car, feeling ashamed and judged, Um, not least judging myself, Um, and uh, half an hour goes, and an hour, and an hour and a half goes, and I'm still sitting in the seat of shame, 
Um, and then two hours goes, and then my sister turns up, bless her, with a, with a McDonald's first aid supply. <laughs> so I eat my fillet of fish and chips in shame with my sister just patting me on the shoulder. Bless her, she's a hero. And then two and a half hours go, and finally the van turns up. And I know, I know just how awkward this is going to be. I get out, and he makes me wait as I wait. And then finally he gets out of his van, and he comes towards me. And he knows, he knows what's happened. And he still needs to ask out loud and hear it from me, doesn't he? So what seems to be the problem, sir? (laughs) And I had to say, I've run out of fuel. And his face said it all. Now, this guy... He was actually lovely. We had a great time together and, and I've learned how to bleed a D5 common rail diesel engine. If anyone needs any help with that, call me. Um, but the truth is, um, my sister said to me in the car, she said, that really pained you to say that, didn't it? And I said, yes, yes it did. <laughs> really pained me. The truth is, he may or may not have been judging me, but I felt stupid. I felt hopeless. I felt like I was on the receiving end of judgment. I felt disempowered. I felt ashamed. He was a lovely guy, but I could just imagine him thinking, oh, gosh, this is the last thing I need. Some person who's run out of petrol, didn't he check the petrol gauge, you know? And then you think about, oh, you know, you get a bit of a reputation. Have you heard about Matt? He ran out of fuel. I mean, honestly, who runs out of fuel? I mean, you know, isn't he prepared? Doesn't he, you know, how do he do that? We begin to make assumptions of people. Oh, he must be so-and-so and such a person. Whether it was real or not, it felt horrible. It gave me an insight, again, a reminder this week into what it feels like, actually, to be judged. To judge yourself harshly. But now imagine the courage it takes for someone not from a church background to step into a life group or a church service or a church situation. Imagine if they don't understand the dress code, not that there is one, or they've never really done church they look a bit different or they talk a bit different and the amount of fear and worry about how this lot will see me or judge me. And then they actually take the step inside the group and sit down feeling silly because they don't know the Bible at all or, or they don't know the songs and don't really know what we do when we say the grace and what's this all about and they can't really sing because they're not really used to it and they don't know where to stand or sit and Now imagine if they've been having financial troubles or personal problems, they haven't got the cleanest of clothes or they've battled with their mental health even to get to the door that morning. Now imagine as they walk through that door that they get a cold and judgmental reception. They get the eyes that say it all as they're looked up and down. Can you imagine the damage that does? Can you imagine it? It's why worldly judgment and favoritism has absolutely no part in the people of Jesus. It has no part in the people you and I are called to be. Perhaps we think we'd never prejudge people like this, but I just want to warn all of us, we've all learned to prejudge people all the time because we use it to survive. We use it to succeed. We respond to hunches we have about certain people. We gravitate to those we feel an instant connection to and away from those we don't. So much of our society actually rewards our ability to judge others. We judge people all the time to help us in business or in life to feel comfortable or to feel powerful, to control, to succeed, to form friends and connections. This person is valuable to me. Is someone worth my time. This person is a waste of time. This person has nothing to offer. This person does This is what was going on in James' 
church. They were actually favoring the rich, assuming that because this person was rich and powerful, had good clothes, that somehow they would bring that power and that protection to the church. They could be useful to the church. They would advance the church with their privilege and status. And James is saying this has no place in the people of God. This has got to stop. He laments the fact that they've got their judgment just so plain wrong. Let alone the fact they're doing it, but it's just so wrong. Have you not realized, you remember Rona reading it, these are the people, actually the rich in that society, then were the ones not helping the church or protecting the church, but suing the church and dividing the church. So blinded, so wrong was their judgment, they weren't even seeing this. You're looking at them, James says, for protection when you have the king of glory on your side. What are you doing? My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious, glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism the way the world does. How does that make sense? seems they've forgotten that they were called to live a totally different life by a totally different standard to the world, the standard of Jesus and his kingdom. And I sometimes think all of us forget this too. Because quite simply, Jesus has never been impressed with the riches and the power and the influence of this world. From the outset, he was the one who called the poor, the uneducated, the outcasts, the struggling, the broken, to come and discover the riches of his love. It wound up the rich and powerful hugely. Why would Jesus come and turn up the Son of God and hang out with the poor and the broken and the outcasts rather than the religious and those that had influence, the significant people? But he chose those without any influence. And he actually sternly rebuked those who thought their power, their ability, their swagger, their clothes should earn them honour in God's eyes. In this letter, the Corinthians, in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul actually says this. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. It's nice, isn't it? We're called the foolish things. The foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Whether you like it or not, whether I like it or not, This is what Jesus does. This is the way the kingdom and worldly judgment and favoritism literally has no place at all in it. So what's the answer this morning? Is it for me to tell you to try and be better? To emphasise that favoritism is forbidden, as the title says in our NIV? Perhaps, yes. But actually I believe this morning we're called to something far greater than simply just trying to be better in this regard. If it's our thoughts that James says are evil when we judge then what each of us needs is a radical transformation in our thinking, the way we think. Change in thinking so contrary to the way of the world that James actually says in the verse just before this chapter, the end of chapter 1, remember in the original scriptures there were no chapters, so this would have run straight into this bit that we're talking about here. He says this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows, the broken the outcast, the unimportant, the uninfluential, to visit them in their affliction. And he says to keep oneself unstained from the world. As spilos, 
is the Greek. It's without blemish or without spot that the world would not even be a spot in your thinking. The clothes you wear metaphorically are the colours of the kingdom, not the colours of the world. It's not a mix of a bit of the world and a bit of the kingdom and a bit of Jesus and a bit of me and I'll kind of fudge it all together. It's no without blemish. So different and radical should your thinking and our thinking be as God's people. Paul says this, you'll know this verse, it's amazing, it's so significant. Romans 12 verse 2, do not conform to the pattern, the ways, the understanding, the thinking of the world, but be transformed, folks, by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. It's not something you and I can do on our own or just conjure up or try really hard to do. It's a work of God by his Holy Spirit, folks. He's who we need if we are truly to be changed. Because if we want to dare to be like Jesus as a church, it's not just about doing stuff better, although it is. We actually need to invite God to first fundamentally and continually and daily and weekly challenge, shape and change our entire worldview. We want to act like Jesus towards others. And first, I want to say this to you. We, we need to see them through his eyes. We need to see like Jesus if we want to act like Jesus. See, there is a place for right judgment. I don't have time to go into this in the Christian life. To discern carefully what is wise or foolish. To test and approve the good and perfect will of God, as Paul says. We're not called to be those without discretion. We're called just to do it so differently to the world. Jesus famously said, don't judge lest you be judged. He's not saying that you can never speak against something you don't think is right. doesn't mean that we can just use this language as an excuse to do whatever we want and say, hey, don't judge me, you can't judge me. No, he's speaking against judging by the world's standards, a judgment that's so blind to its own hypocrisy that it will say, hey, get that speck out of your eye when we've got a massive log in our own Steady says in John 7 verse 24, we're to stop judging by mere appearances, by this human way of judging. Rather, he says, we're to judge correctly. John 7 verse 24. And believe it or not, this starts, I believe, with our eyesight. Did you notice Jesus talks about judging both of these occasions? It's a problem with our sight. Take that log out of your eye. Stop judging by appearances. It's clear we need our blindness to be transformed by Jesus. And what did he say when he started his ministry Luke 4, this is such an important passage. Jesus turns up and he goes, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me. What? To proclaim good news. Who to? The powerful know the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. He has come to open the eyes of the blind. Yes, physically, but what if he also meant you and me? Our spiritual blindness What if he meant all of us? He'd come to open our eyes so that we might see as he sees. Because if we could see like Jesus sees, how different people would look to us. Wouldn't stop them being annoying or frustrating or liking different bands or driving a different car or voting for a different party than we might. Wouldn't stop them making or doing silly things like running out of fuel. But instead of seeing an annoying person, a misfit, a fool that we should dismiss. We would see perhaps a struggling person who needs love and understanding. Perhaps every person we would see as we look through the eyes of Jesus would be someone deeply loved and valued, capable of such goodness in the Lord. The psalmist in Psalm 25 says this, 
Do not remember, I love this, the rebellious sins of my youth, Lord God. Remember me in the light of your unfailing love. For you are merciful, O Lord. And I want to say to you, that's exactly how Jesus sees every person. Through the light of his unfailing love. He doesn't see the rebellion and the sins of their youth. He sees them in the light of his unfailing love. Because he is merciful. You see, Jesus always looked through the lens of love, not fear. Love was his lens. Everything he did, when he reached out, he blessed, encouraged, he accepted. Even when he challenged and condemned, he was always motivated by his unfailing love. Yet in contrast, we are so often motivated by fear. I can't go into this now. But so much of our judgment of the other actually comes from fear. Racism, anti-immigration, prejudice, judgmentalism, favoritism is motivated by a fear to stay safe or feel powerful or to feel comfortable. We don't like the other and the threat that they are to us. It's why political language tries to dehumanise and take away the humanity of others as cockroaches or fools or invaders or thugs or bobs or jabs. They're anything but human. But when Jesus looks, he sees a precious person, a human made in God's image, lost and struggling, called to be a child of God. Rather than judgment motivated by fear, Jesus calls us to mercy motivated by love. I haven't got time to do this justice, folks. I'm just aware clock's against me here. I'm going to just try and pull this into land. But I want to say, the truth is, as we learn to see others through the eyes of Jesus, the eyes of unfailing love, First, see them as a human first, as blessed first, as loved by God first. Before any of the conversations or the, or the, or the, or the agreements to disagree or whatever that is, the first way we look is we learn to see them first, almost like that seed that's within them, that's been put in them before all the muck and the mire and all the sin and the shame and all the difference and all the clothes and all the this and all the that, that there is this person here, utterly loved by God. As we learn to do that, we realise, of course, that that's how he loves me and you. That's how he views you this morning. Not the facade, not the job, not the clothes, not the hobbies. He is interested in all of that stuff. But he sees the seed inside, who you are, and he calls you by name. He sees your heart, your potential, your value. He delights in you. He knit you together in your mother's womb before all the muck and the mire got stuck on the outside. He sees the precious person he made behind the sin and the facade and the clothes and the makeup. And I believe as we repent of our judgment and our favoritism, as we've been doing this in the way of the world, all of us sometimes do it, this morning's a chance just to say, Lord, open my eyes again that I might see like Jesus does. Open my eyes to see with the eyes of Jesus. And the truth is, Christians have told me that as we do this, um, I know he does this, and I know he can do that, even for us all this morning. Because even just recently, Christians have testified to me that there's been someone in their life that they've just not been able to love, that they found it difficult, who's hurt them, and yet God's done something and enabled them to see the person within struggling and hurting and, and able to show love to them. It doesn't mean that they uh, uh, didn't matter what this person did to harm them. It doesn't 
excuse behaviour, it doesn't make it all okay, it doesn't mean you stay in a situation of harm, folks, don't mishear me. But God can open your eyes to see the person inside, the one who God made and loved, the one that God wants to reach out to and draw out, and in mercy and in love for you to reach out to them. It's what we're called to do, it's what James calls the law that brings freedom. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that that gives freedom because judgment without mercy, well, that's going to be shown to anyone who's not being merciful. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Can I invite the band to come back up for me a moment? I want to finish with just two very quick stories as we sing our final song. The first one, you'll know there was a woman who was once dragged before Jesus She'd been caught sleeping with someone outside of marriage, someone who was not her husband, the priests and the religious leaders. They were having a field day. They were going to get her in trouble. They were going to try and trick Jesus. Who knows what happened to the man involved? He got away scot-free, I imagine. But this woman, no, not her. They dragged her to Jesus. They dumped her in front of him. Messy, presumably half-dressed. You can imagine the names. Dirty, disgrace, whore, adulterer. You can imagine how she felt, ashamed and afraid, and dirty and worthless. How would Jesus respond? For judgment must be passed, the leader said. You must do it, Jesus. Well, he viewed her through the eyes of his unfailing love, and he saw a girl deeply loved, but struggling, made in the image of God, full of beauty and potential in the Lord. He crouched down to her, and he began scribbling in the sand, and he simply said to those around, okay, those who have not sinned, you can cast the first stone. You can cast the first stone. And one by one they they left until Jesus said, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? And she said, no, Lord. Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Jesus didn't say that what she did wasn't wrong. Was. Didn't say it didn't matter. It did. And it had to stop. But before the conversation, before the teaching moment, Jesus loved her. In this moment, he showed her and us what it looks like when mercy triumphs over judgment. And the final thing I want to share with you is this. When I was doing my master's dissertation, I was in a class of very, 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 very clever people, far cleverer than I. They were all enthusiastic and amazing. They were squashed in this class in a a college that was linked to the college that I went to. Not one I knew well. I went there sometimes. And it was quite an intense class. And I, for whatever reason, I cannot remember, I'd been late a couple of times uh, before and it was not a class you wanted to be late for it just felt like oh no I need to be in there early well this one day I think I was at least 10 maybe even 15 minutes late now that's embarrassingly late that is not the late that I wanted to be and I was stood outside the door and I could hear the intense conversations and the questions about hermatology and uh, uh, hermeneutics hermatology is not even a thing hermeneutics and missiology and whatever else they were talking about um, And I thought, what am I going to do? Because if I go in, I know as I go in through this door, I've got to then sort of walk in front of the projector whilst they're all looking at it. I've then got to squeeze my way through the really tight aisles, stepping over people's bags. Um, I've then got to get a desk out from the back that's probably pushed against the wall, pull it back round, move someone else's bag, get my laptop out, find a plug, stretch the cable across someone else's table, (laughs) plug that thing in, sit myself down, sweating, hot, puffing, and feeling absolutely stupid, and I thought, there's no way I'm going in this door. Well, I plucked up courage, and I expected the teacher, as soon as I walked through that door, to say, what on earth are you doing? Why are you late? But I pushed that door open, 
And the teacher went, Matt, come in, brother. You are loved. And that moment changed everything. I've never forgotten that moment. It gave me such an insight into the welcome we get from Jesus. Matt, come in, brother. You are loved. In that moment, I understood what it means when mercy triumphs over judgment. And that's the people we're called to be. That's the transformation. I pray this morning, God will begin afresh in all of us, that we might become a church absolutely hallmarked by the love of Jesus and the mercy that comes before judgment as we welcome, as we love, as we reach out to a complicated, hurting world. And as we realize that's how Jesus sees you and me.